Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 251. Today's big Bible question, will God allow horrible things to happen to faithful and wonderful people? Well, happy Thursday, friends. A bit of a shorter episode today. Why, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. Two reasons. Number one, today's Bible readings are really quite short. And number two, it's uh, after one in the morning, and I just returned from about a two and a half hour tromp around the woods in the dark looking for my AirPods, which somehow fell out of my pocket earlier today on the late afternoon hike. Now, the area where I lost those guys, and I know this is the ultimate first world problem, but the area where I lost them is quite interesting. We're just a few miles away from the old site of Fort Ord, which was a large and sprawling military base or post that used to house up to 50,000 men at its peak. Uh, it was a big fort, a uh, big base during World War II and Korea, a little bit during Vietnam as well. And it was closed in 1994 and converted to a national monument, which is kind of like a national park, in 2012. And it's a fantastic place to explore during the day, partially because there are tons of World War II era buildings still around that are kind of rotting and, you know, kind of crazy. Um, at night, however, when you're looking for your AirPods and it's dark, it's a little eerie. So my wife texted me tonight around 1030 to see if I had any uh, success yet. And I told her no. And I felt like I was in spooky town uh, right next to a haunted fort with all the World War II buildings nearby. And it was a super foggy night and a full moon, but the fog was covering the moon. And anyway, she texted me back. And she said, just ask the vets for help finding your AirPods. They can probably see in the dark. Great. Well, unfortunately, the ghosts of Fort Ord were no help in finding them. But I guess, fortunately, they didn't shoot me or eat me or whatever it is ghosts do. So that's nice. Now, we're not talking about ghosts today. Well, at least not anymore. Stay tuned for tomorrow's episode, though. We actually will see an appearance in the Bible of what most people would call a ghost in 1 Samuel 28, believe it or not. But what we are talking about today is a very tough question. Our short readings include 1 Samuel 27, Ezekiel 6, 1 Corinthians 8, and our focus passage, Psalm 44, which on the surface almost seems like a hopeless psalm. Now, me, I like movies, books, media, and that sort of thing that ends well. I can handle a little bit of tribulation in the beginning and, the, you know, the middle too. Uh, but I want to know that there's something hopeful coming in the end. But honestly, Psalm 44 is not really like that. It sort of begins in a hopeful place, but the house just kind of burns down the more you read it until the very end where the psalmist just seems to be able to barely whimper out a cry for help. So on the surface, this is not an encouraging psalm. So why focus on it? Well, that's a good question. Let's answer it after we read the psalm. Psalm chapter 44, verse 1, the Christian Standard Bible. God, we have heard with our ears, our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days, in days long ago, in order to plant them. You displaced the nations by your hand in order to settle them. You brought disaster on the peoples, for they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory, but by your right hand, your arm in the light of your face, because you were favorable towards them. You are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. 
Through you we drive back our foes, through your name we trample our enemies, for I do not trust in my bow and my sword does not bring me victory, but you give us victory over our foes and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever, Selah. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe, and those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. You hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long, and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. All this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path, but you have crushed us in a haunt of jackals and have covered us with deepest darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread our our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secrets of the heart? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your faithful love. So see what I mean? In a lot of ways, this is kind of a grim psalm. And yet it is also very honest, genuine, unvarnished, sincere. Like really, really frank is a good word for it. That kind of honest. Uh, Maybe even beyond frank. I say it frequently, some Christians like to put on a fake smile and act like everything is okay. Even worse, some popular preachers seem to peddle Christianity as if it's the key to having a happy and successful life now, but it isn't. Don't listen to those teachers and preachers. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul quotes this from Romans 8. In one of the most encouraging passages in the entire Bible. So how can this be? How can you get something encouraging out of Psalm 44? Well, let's ask John Piper to help explain it to us. And Piper says, What is Jesus trying to say to us when he says, Go ahead and risk obedience. Some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Well, I think the best commentary on that is in Romans 8, 35-39, where Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written in Psalm 44, For thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Piper continues, remember that the words of Jesus were, some of you they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, what does Paul say? Well, number one, Christ's love does not eliminate our suffering. Like Jesus, Paul says, first of all, that Even if we love God, we might suffer. Our very attachment might bring us to Christ, might bring us suffering. What is Paul's answer to his own question in verse 35? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate us from the love of Christ? Well, his answer in verse 37 is a resounding no. But don't miss the implication of the question. The reason that these things will not separate us from the love of Christ is not because they don't happen to people whom Christ loves. The quote in verse 36 is from Psalm 44, 22, and it's Paul's way of saying that these things do, in fact, come upon Christ's people. For thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, Christ's love for us, referred to in verse 35, does not remove us from these sufferings. This is the meaning of the little word in verse 37. And in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not by escaping them. In other words, no misery that a true Christian ever experiences is evidence that he has been cut off from the love of Christ. The love of Christ triumphs over all misery. Verses 38 through 39 make this crystal clear when he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the far side of every risk, even if that risk results in death, that is a risk for the kingdom of God, the love of God triumphs. This is the faith that frees us to risk for the cause of God, says Piper. It's not heroism or lust for adventure or courageous self-reliance, or efforts to earn God's favor, it is childlike faith in the triumph of God's love, that on the far side of all of our risks for the sake of righteousness, God will still be holding us. So now we have seen three things that Paul and Jesus say. Number one, the love of Christ does not remove his people from suffering, and so all obedience is risk. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Number two, though, But none of this suffering will ever separate us from the love of Christ. On the far side of risk, the love of God always triumphs. Number three, but even more, when we risk for the cause of God and meet the enemy of affliction with the weapons of faith, the enemy is not just defeated, it is captured and made to serve the eternal good of the Christian warrior. And all of this is through the triumphant love of Christ. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So be encouraged, brothers and sisters. In this world, we will have tribulation. That is not an empty promise of Jesus. It is a sure and faithful promise of Jesus. And yet, none of the tribulation we have is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So no matter what miseries we will face, and we will face some miseries, God is faithful, God loves us, God will redeem the suffering, and on the other end of it, we will overcome as more than conquerors through Christ and through his love. So amen and be encouraged by that. Let's continue reading in 1 Samuel 27 verse 1. David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There's nothing better for me to do than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. So David set out with his 600 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men stayed with Achish and Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now David said to Achish, If I have found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? 
That day, Akish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the kings of Judah today. The length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman, but he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? David replied, The south country of Judah, the south country of the Jeremelites, or the south country of the Kenites. David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, Or they will inform on us and say, This is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, Since he has made himself repulsive to his people Israel, he will be my servant forever. Ezekiel chapter 6 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, face the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. You are to say, Mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys. I am about to bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be desolated and your shrines smashed. I will throw down your slain in front of your idols. I will lay the corpses of the Israelites in front of their idols and scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, the cities will be in ruins and the high places will be desolate so that your altars will lie in ruins and be desecrated, your idols smashed and obliterated, your shrines cut down, and what you have made wiped out. The slain will fall among you and you will know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave a remnant when you are scattered among the nations, for throughout the countries there will be some of you who will escape the sword. Then your survivors will remember me among the nations where they are taken captive, how I was crushed by their promiscuous hearts and turned away from me, and by their eyes that lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves because of the evil things they did, their detestable actions of every kind, and they will know that I am the Lord." I did not threaten to bring this disaster on them without a reason. This is what the Lord God says. Clap your hands, stamp your feet, and cry out over all the evil and detestable practices of the house of Israel who will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. The one who is far off will die by plague. The one who is near will fall by the sword, and the one who remains and is spared will die of famine. In this way, I will exhaust my wrath on them. You will all know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols, around the altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, and under every green tree and every leafy oak, the places where they offered pleasing aromas to their idols. I will stretch out my hand against them, and wherever they live, I will make the land a desolate waste from the wilderness to Riblah. Then they will know that I am the Lord. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been used so, so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better off if we do eat. 
But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who is knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he encourage you. May his word dwell richly in your heart through faith. Good day and Godspeed.